Verse by verse, that's what we're doing. So we're in Matthew chapter 26 uh, as we go through the Bible together. Why don't you turn there with me? Matthew 26, we began the chapter on Wednesday night um, and uh, made it to about verse 30. But what I'd like to do is, you know, we take our Sunday text from our upcoming Wednesday uh, study. Uh, and so um, I want to um, bounce around this chapter a little bit. And we're not gonna talk about the story as much as we're gonna identify some things that poor Peter does in the story. And this is one of Peter's not so good days. Um, poor Peter, man, he, he goes down as sort of this goofy foot in the mouth, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, doing the wrong things all the time. But I, I, I gotta start saying, I love Peter. I, I, I think of all the disciples, I relate to Peter the best. Uh, he, he's the guy. And I also wanna remind you that Peter ends up being a total awesome apostle who is inspired and filled with the Holy Spirit and does some amazing things after the resurrection of Jesus. But before the resurrection of Jesus, Peter's often an example of what not to do. Uh, and so uh, I, I gotta tell you, if, when I meet Peter in heaven someday, I hope he's not mad at me for giving this sermon because I'm gonna point out all of Peter's mistakes that he does just only here in chapter 26. It's enough for a whole sermon, uh, all the things. In fact, I have seven things that Peter does here that I wanna use as a lesson for us of pitfalls to, to watch out for. Um, and uh, we pick it up right here in chapter 26. Let's, let's begin in verse 31. It says in uh, verse 31, then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. He's talking to his 12 disciples. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. This is Jesus telling the disciples, you guys are gonna be offended by me. And, and the idea of offended here is an interesting word. Um, the, the Greek word is skanzo, skandalizo, which means scandalized. There's gonna be a scandal. And Jesus is gonna be apprehended this very evening in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus tells them. And none of this should be a surprise for the disciples. You know, the, the, the disciples, they all... Um, have been told several times, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're gonna crucify me on a cross, they're gonna whip me with a scourge of cords, uh, but I'm gonna raise up from the dead. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and where he was going. Um, so speaking of Jesus movies, some of those old Jesus movies, I always cracked up because they'd show Jesus sort of wrestling with the Roman guards, like resisting arrest, uh, like don't, you know, and they're dragging him, you know, heels dragging, that's not what happened. Jesus went willingly to the cross. He went with you in mind, with a joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame. And uh, we're gonna see even here that Jesus could have defended himself. If he wanted to you know, drag his heels, he really could have. And his heels could have been as big as Saturn, uh, like if he wanted his heels to drag. Uh, but he doesn't do that, he goes willingly. But that's part of the story. So, so Jesus said, you guys are gonna be offended, scandalized by what's happening tonight. Um, and this is, by the way, he says, it is written, speaking of the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 13, seven, which prophesies that the shepherd would be smitten, that's Jesus, and then the, the sheep, the disciples, would be scattered. Jesus, this is gonna be fulfilled tonight. And so this is how he kind of begins this little dissertation. Um, but verse 33, Peter answered and said unto him, now pause for a second, this is always where we as Bible readers get nervous, where Peter says something. Whenever Peter opens his mouth, oh boy, do you ever feel like that? I sure do. Uh, you know, I've never regretted something I didn't say. <laughs> but as a pastor, I say a lot of stuff. And sometimes you say stuff and you're kind of like, oh man, should I have really said that? And you know, poor Peter, it reminds me of the wide mouth frog. Have you heard the story of the wide mouth frog? The wide mouth frog walked up to a horse and says, hi, I'm a wide mouth frog. What are you? I'm a horse. Well, what do you like to eat? And the horse said, I eat hay. And he said, wow. And then he walked up to the cow. Hi, I'm a wide mouth frog. What do you like to eat? And the cow said, I like to eat alfalfa. Wow. And then he went over to a crocodile and said, hi, I'm a wide mouth frog. What do you like to eat? And the crocodile said, wide mouth frogs. And he said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> Do you have a big mouth? 
Peter does, poor Peter, and he's always saying stupid stuff and he's always getting himself into trouble. This is no exception, let's read. So Peter, verse 33, answered and said unto him, though all men shall be offended because of you, yet I will never be offended. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice or three times. And Peter said unto him, though I should die with thee, yet I will not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. Do you ever get a sense that Peter's kind of the ringleader? Peter's like, I will not die. I will die before I deny thee. And, and I was like, yeah, what he said, yeah, that, that. Um, but poor Peter, what is he doing here? And, and this, is, this is what we're gonna call as, as out of our seven Peter's pitfalls, the first one we're gonna observe is overconfident in his flesh. Peter was overconfident in his flesh. Now, the, the word flesh is something we Christians use. It's Christianese um, because it's in the Bible. And if you're new to the Bible, you might say, why do Christians talk about the flesh? Well, we're not talking about your skin, uh, like some people would say, your flesh. But um, the Bible uses the word flesh as sort of an idiom to describe the part of you that wants to do evil and bad things. The part of you that wants to go contrary to God. Um, you know, in the cartoons, there's always a little evil guy on one shoulder and then the righteous little holy guy on the other shoulder. And the evil guy's saying, steal it, do it, lie. And then the, the innocent guy's going, no, tell the truth, follow Jesus, love everybody. Like, like you know, the, the, well, the, the, little, the little evil one, well, that's your flesh talking to you. And Paul would talk about his flesh all the time. He said, oh, that is in, to say in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. That's where, you know, he says, I don't do the things I want to do, but I do the things I don't want to do. And he says, in my flesh, there's no good thing that lives there. And that's Paul understanding there's a side of human nature, your sin nature, the part that you were born with. We were all born in sin, the Bible says, and we have a sin nature. That's the part of you that wants to do the wrong thing. And the Bible says that we all have a thing within us, warring flesh, against the spirit. Now, the reason I think that's an important thing for you to understand is because I think some of you get depressed just because you have a war between your flesh and your spirit and it really frustrates you. Now, I'm not gonna say you shouldn't be frustrated that you have a war between your flesh and your spirit. Um, uh, that is frustrating and I have to admit it's a frustration for me and it's a frustration for all of us, but some people let it bring them to the point of despair. Uh, if you have a war in your, in your life between your flesh and your spirit, can I just say welcome to the club of humanity? We all have that warring of the flesh. And I think we're gonna have a certain struggle um, to the day we die. The Christian repents of sin and says, Lord, we wanna follow you and we wanna work, walk with you. Um, and Paul did that, but he still said, but I still do the things I don't wanna do and I don't do the things I do wanna do. And I wrestle with my flesh. Even after he was saved, he wrestled with that. There's good news though. The Bible says when we see the Lord, we will be what? Like him. When we see him, we will be like him. There's coming a day where that flesh will ultimately be done away with. Um, that's eternity in heaven with the Lord. I look forward to that day where there's no longer the warring between the flesh and the spirit. But that's this term flesh, and I wanna define that because we're gonna bump into that all through the New Testament as we go through the New Testament. The part of you that wants to sin, your old sin nature, sometimes it's called your, your sin, uh, your, your old man, it's called sometimes. It's called the carnal part of man or the carnal man is all part of your flesh. The problem is when you start trusting in your flesh that's gonna let you down. Peter is overconfident in his own flesh thinking, I can do this. Now, the, the, the statement Peter made, this was about as presumptuous as it gets, wouldn't you say? This was uh, a speech given by Peter to Jesus that was as presumptuous as it gets, not only because of his self-confidence, which is displayed in his ability to not be uh, scandalizo or you know, offended, and, and, uh, and also that he would not deny Jesus. Peter thought he knew better than Christ did, so he um, contradicted Jesus two times in a row. Verse 33, he contradicted Jesus saying, even though all men will be defended, offended by you, I will not be. You're wrong about that one. Now, now can I just give you and me a word of advice? When you're talking to God, don't say, oh, you're wrong about that. That's a bad, you're, you're gonna lose that argument. I'm just gonna tell you. Peter says, you're wrong, Lord. I'm not gonna be offended. That's strike one. 
And then Jesus said, oh yeah, well, before the rooster crows, you're gonna deny me three times. And Peter said uh, there in verse 35, though I die with thee, yet I will not deny thee. Either Peter's calling Jesus a liar or that he's misinformed. It's not a good plan. And it's one of the things that happens when you and I have an overconfidence in our own flesh. Uh, It's gonna fail you every time. When you think, oh, I will never do that. Um, Have you ever done something only to catch yourself thinking, boy, there was a time in my life where I thought I would never do that sin. But then you realize you've done it. That's why the Bible gives us verses like, you know, I love this one in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. um, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. It's often in the area you think you're standing, that's where you're gonna fail the worst. Ask Moses there in the Old Testament. It's written of Moses, Moses wrote it, but he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he said, Moses is the meekest man on the face of the earth. Moses was a meek man. What's meekness? It's not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. By the way, Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of spirit. That's the only autobiographical statement Jesus made about his own personality, that he was meek. But Moses was in the Old Testament called the meekest man on the face of the earth. But where did Moses blow it the worst? It was lacking meekness. Do you remember there when the people were thirsty the second time and Moses yelled out at the people, you rebels, King James, Latin Latin translation of the Old Testament, you morons, that's what he called them, morons. Must we fetch water for you? And whack, he smashes the rock, which that time the Lord said, I want you to speak to the rock, not hit the rock like the first time. But he smashes the rock again and water comes out. And then the Lord says, Moses, come over here. Other people are drinking, you know. And he says, Moses, because you've misrepresented me and you were angry at the people, I'm not mad at the people, you were mad at the people. But because you've done this, this is the thing that's gonna keep you out of the promised land. What's the big deal? So he got a little mad. Well, this is where Moses thought he was the strongest in his his meekness, but that would be the one area that he'd find himself failing. That's where this warning of the word, wherefore let him that thinks that he's standing firm and strong Take heed, lest he fall. One of the things that contributes to this overconfidence in our flesh is the issue of pride. And not unlike this verse, the the book of Proverbs tells us this, pride goeth before, is it a fall or destruction? Um, Some of you guys got it wrong and I'm really prideful that I know this. Uh, uh, (laughs) Pride, what an irony, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's what the Bible says. Isn't it something how our flesh, we start thinking, I'm pretty good, I'm strong, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough. See, the world pushes that notion, you're good enough. And the truth is, you're not. The Bible teaches totally the opposite of what the world teaches on this. You can trust yourself. You're smart enough, you're, you're beautiful, you're handsome, uh, and people like you as you go do your self-affirmation in the mirror. Uh, the Bible actually says no. Um, Being overconfident in your flesh is something that leads to your fall. And I think that's why, interestingly enough, we are so um, intrigued by our culture when we see celebrities or pastors or people fall, moral failures, or horrible things like this crime. You know, this guy was a Murdoch, who was the guy who murdered his wife and his son, and everybody's watching this hearing the hearings this last week and how could that happen? A guy killing his own family and trying to cover up his drug addiction and money. Like people are, you know, that's, that's where we kind of go, how does that happen? And a wealthy guy or seemingly wealthy, where did that come from? Well, it had to do with pride. This guy thinking he was standing, but he ended up falling and falling huge and got two life sentences for his crimes. The world's kind of intrigued by this because I think In some way, we all know we have this propensity, though we think we stand, we have to be careful lest we fall. And pride goes before a destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So the Bible actually says, concerning your flesh, your flesh is weak. Jesus is gonna say here in a few verses, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. It's a good thing to really acknowledge that. That is in my flesh, like Paul said, there's nothing good that dwells there. and, and, and again, when the world tries to say, build your self-esteem, that's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. The Bible says, esteem others better than yourself. 
The Bible actually says no man ever hated his own flesh. In fact, it's Ephesians 5, 29. For no man ever hated yet his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it. Well, Brett, I don't like my, my flesh. Well, see, that's the problem with flesh. Your flesh is your sin nature. And when you become absorbed by yourself, um, even thinking about yourself and worrying about yourself, that's all part of this, this flesh nature that, that you care about and you love, but you don't put your trust in your flesh. That'll let you down every time. But rather be real, recognize your sinful tendencies and that we all make mistakes. And Christianity uh, doesn't just point out our failures, like here with poor Peter, but it actually um, helps us realize where the weaknesses are and helps us behave differently. Hopefully, this is a good reminder that Peter was putting confidence in his flesh, and we're gonna see him fail huge here in chapter 26 because he had too much confidence in his flesh. So that's the number one pitfall of Peter, um, overconfidence in the flesh. Number two, personal weakness in his spirit. What's that? Well, we go to then to verse 40. Now you have to understand, after that, Jesus, you know, uh, after Jesus told Peter that about the cock crowing and all that, and Peter said, I'll die with you. Well, they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the picture behind my notes here, uh, is a picture we took there of the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem, just outside of the city on the Mount of Olives. These are olive trees. And so there Jesus gets into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a big moment in the New Testament. And Jesus instructs Peter and James and John to sit and uh, while, while Jesus was um, gonna go and pray a little further off in the garden. And he said, why don't you sit here and pray with me, but you guys sit here, pray and watch with me. Well, then we pick up what happens there in verse 40. And he came to his disciples and found them asleep and said unto Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, once you realize that your, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak, um, what you end up also finding is you have weakness in your spirit. Your spirit is willing, but what, what is it? You can't just do everything on your own. I wonder why Peter and the guys were so tired. They're all sawing logs in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, can you imagine the gravity of the moment? There's Jesus, as the, the, some of the other gospels kind of put it, Jesus is praying with such intensity that it looks like he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And he's saying, oh Lord, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of suffering that he's about to face, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not in my will, but thy will be done. This radical thing, and all of a sudden you hear this. And Jesus walks over to Peter, James, John, who are sleeping at that most intense moment. Why? Because they were weak. Even though their spirit was willing, they ended up sleeping and their flesh was weak. And this is what we have to kind of remember. When God gives you something to do, like go pray, um, he's gonna give you the strength to do it. And, he, and that's by the power of his spirit. You can't de depend on your spirit to be the strength, but it's not by might nor by power, but by thy spirit, that the spirit of the Lord saith the Lord of hosts. Um, that's where the Holy Spirit needs to come upon us and give us real strength. You are not strong enough in and of yourself. Um, personal weakness in, in Peter's spirit because during this time, he should have been praying. Meanwhile, he's sleeping. Uh, now, is Jesus just simply pointing out their weakness? Um, could Peter have tried harder and stayed awake? Um, um, have you ever been at that place where you're, you know, at a place where you can barely keep your eyes open? You're like, yeah, Brett, right now, every time you preach, it's like a sleeping aid coming to church, listening to you. Um, I'm reminded of that little country church where the, you know, the pastor was preaching, but the pastor was so annoyed because there was this one old dude that sat in the back and he would snore as loud as could be. So they positioned a deacon back there with a long stick. And the pastor said, when he, when he just tap him on the, on the, the shoulder and, and wake him up, you know, because this is annoying. And so the guy, sure enough, like clockwork, after two minutes, and the whole congregation heard it, so the, the deacon sort of tapped him on the shoulder, and the guy kind of looked over, and was like, oh, he starts listening. Two minutes later, so this time the deacon kind of tapped him on the top of the head. And the guy wakes up, and third time, kind of whacks him on the head. But the guy just kept falling asleep. So the deacon was pretty annoyed by this point. So the deacon 
Um, this fourth time just gave him a big old whack on that whack and the guy fell out of his pew and kind of tumbled into the aisle and laying down the whole congregation turns around and they weren't sure you know but rather than responding in anger the delinquent church member uh, was heard to say hit me again I can still hear him preaching <laughs> do you ever feel like you know, man that there's just that thing in nature that makes it so you cannot keep your eyes open and no doubt, Peter, James, and John, they'd already prepared the Passover. They did the Passover dinner. I mean, that's a busy day if you're a Jew in Jerusalem. Man, that whole thing just in and of itself is exhausting. And now it's later at night and they're, they're just saying, man, we can't even keep our eyes open. Um, but that's where we have to realize our flesh is weak, but our spirit is also willing, but it still is weak. And that's why we need to trust in the Lord and let the spirit be our, his spirit be our power. Um, by the way, I, I love how Jesus is not being brutal here, pointing out Peter's weakness. I think Jesus is actually being, uh, you know, caring when he says that last line in verse 41, the spirit indeed is willing. He, he said, I understand you're willing, but it's your flesh that's weak. And he's just calling it out like it is. I think Jesus understands. That's what he's saying. I understand. In fact, it's not the first time we hear that kind of understanding. Psalm 103, the Lord speaks through the psalmist in Psalm 103, 14, for he, the Lord, knows our frame and remembereth that we are dust. The Lord understands our weakness and he understands that we're frail and flawed and he's compassionate and merciful all the same. I love that about Jesus. I love that about our Lord. But it, the problem comes when you and I think we're stronger than we really are, both flesh and spirit. We need to put our trust in the Lord. So we're learning, hopefully from Peter. Number one, overconfident in the flesh. Number two, personal weakness in his spirit. But number three, we see Peter fighting the wrong battles. What happens? Well, in the garden, after Jesus wakes him up again, well, clinkety clink, along comes the Roman soldiers and the high priests and the servants of the high priests. And they're coming to arrest Jesus and the whole Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. Like that we're at that pinnacle of the moment where Jesus is now being apprehended by the Romans and by the high priest there in Jerusalem, Caiaphas and his uh, colleagues. But Peter chooses to fight the wrong battle. Let's take a look. It's verse 51 of our text here. It says, and behold, one of them, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put up again thy sword into its place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? So here, Matthew's gospel gives us a bit of the story, but Matthew kind of, you know, leaves some names out to protect the not so innocent. I always crack up at the different gospels. Matthew's very judicious and careful. One of the disciples pulled out a sword and chopped off a dude's ear. John's gospel says, it was Peter. <laughs> it's like, 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 in fact, in the gospel of John, you kind of sense that John and Peter had sort of a little, uh, you know, a little bit of healthy competition going. Because John records everything. You know, it was Peter who did that. It was Peter who said that, um, where, where Matthew kind of covers that up a lot of times. One of the funny ones uh, there in John's gospel is when uh, it says, Peter and John, the one Jesus loved, John, yours truly. Uh, John says, we ran to the tomb and John the apostle got there before Peter. Like, like that cracks me up. Why did John put that in the gospel? Uh, I beat Peter to the tomb. I won. Um, and it goes through all history. I'm not sure I know the spiritual significance of including that in the Bible. Maybe there's a reason. I think every word is inspired by God for a reason, but maybe it's just to show us that Peter and John were a little competitive. But John says, yeah, it was Peter there. In fact, in John chapter 18, verse 10, you know, it says it was Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and smote the servant of the high priest. Malchus was his name. John gives us all that detail. And we also hear that Jesus then says, Peter, put away your sword. And then Jesus reaches down. We got an Evander Holyfield, you know, Mike Tyson moment. If you remember that fight when Mike Tyson bit off Evander Holyfield's ear and it was laying there on the, um, the mat. 
Um, uh, Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, sticks it back on Malchus's head, healed, good to go. That's an amazing part of the story. But what's going on here? Well, Peter is, what, what we're seeing here is he's fighting the wrong battle. And I think this is a mistake you and I can make all the time. How many times are we fighting the wrong battle? Well, what do you mean, Brett, fighting the wrong battle? Jesus is being apprehended. And Peter's gonna you know, try to step in and zorro it up and, and try to defend Jesus. Well, it's really um, a misguided attempt. And I'll tell you why. There's a couple things you need to understand. Jesus already told Peter, here's what's gonna happen. They're going to apprehend me. I'm going to be scourged with a whip and I'm going to die on a cross and I'm gonna raise from the dead. This is all gonna happen. But Peter was so busy saying, not so, Lord. Remember back in Matthew 16? No. And also in the chapter here where he says, no, I will never, I will die at your side. Peter's missing the point and he's fighting this fleshly battle between flesh and blood. And so he draws his, now, now the, the, the Bible says sword here. There's different Greek words for sword. And I just have to say, if you picture a nice, big, impressive sword, Peter going, shh, pulling out some big battle axe sword, that's not what it was. The Greek word for sword is like a little tiny knife. <laughs> Peter, Peter is not impressive. He's a fisherman. He's not a soldier. And Peter's gonna fight a flesh and blood battle. Who does he go after? The buffest, most uh, tough-looking Roman soldier standing there? No, he goes after not even the high priest, but the high priest's assistant, who's not even armed. Like, this is kind of embarrassing, Peter. What do you think you're doing? When Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. You see, one of the mistakes you and I make is forgetting there's a spiritual battle that's more important than the physical battle, or maybe the physical battle is even non-existent. The Bible tells us to watch out for this in Ephesians 6, 12. You guys know this scripture, many of you. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, this is exactly what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a spiritual battle going on, and it was a cosmic battle bigger than any other time in the world's history. God became a man, was in the Garden of Gethsemane and was willing to go and die on a cross that would be the nail in the coffin to Satan. Satan would be defeated because Jesus died on the cross and we would have the privilege, the blessing of going to heaven because Jesus was gonna win a spiritual battle on the cross that had to do with principalities, powers, rulers of darkness against spiritual wickedness in high places. Jesus was already doing battle right there. And he was doing it rightly. Peter gets it wrong and says, I'm gonna chop this guy's ear off. When really he should have put his sword away and realized this is a spiritual battle. You know, Jesus knew what was going on and he was willing to go. Uh, you know, Isaiah 50 verse seven says that Jesus would set his face like flint and um, not be ashamed of what he had to do. Hebrews 12 too says that it was the joy that was set before him that he would endure the cross and despise the shame. Jesus knew he was fighting a spiritual battle. Peter made the mistake of thinking that it was a physical battle but with Romans and priests and stuff like that. And he starts hacking away. I wonder how many of you are hacking away at physical things when you should be praying, seeking, reading your word, um, remembering scripture instead of hacking away at each other. Maybe it's your boss who seems to be mean to you and hasn't you know, done the right thing or not given you the promotion. And so you think you've got this battle, but maybe it's not a physical battle. Maybe there's spiritual stuff going on. Maybe it's the fact that he knows you're a Christian and because of that, he treats you differently. And it's a, it's a spiritual issue. Um, maybe your husband or your wife, you're arguing and, and it's not a physical, you know, uh, issue of what's, you know, it's funny. Have you ever noticed in marriage when you argue with each other, how many times you catch yourselves arguing about stupid things, things that don't matter? Well, I think it's faster to get to Fred Meyer if you take uh, this road instead of that road. Well, no, it's not, you idiot. It's much faster to go this way than that way. Who cares? Take the long way. Talk and love each other. Be kind. What a waste. I mean, here's a good sign that you as a husband or wife are dealing with more spiritual issues. Not for, when, when you spend the five bucks on a five-cent argument. Have you ever caught yourself? It usually is at one in the morning when you're tired and delirious and you're arguing till the wee hours of the morning and then you kind of stop it. What are we arguing about again? That usually means there's something else going on there. 
Um, I think that a lot of times we start hacking away at each other, and that's exactly what Satan wants. Satan wants to devour you, he wants to devour families, and he wants to devour marriages. And so if he can get you to fight flesh and blood rather than realize there's spiritual things going on and even wickedness trying to tweak and mess with you, then he's won. If, if he can get you to start chopping up each other physically, you know, yelling, screaming at each other, being angry, bitter, uh, and, realize, uh, and, and not realize that it's a spiritual battle, are you fighting physical battles when actually it's a spiritual battle. And you gotta remember what you know, Peter warned us. Peter himself knows this now. When he wrote First Peter, he said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, um, that's, that's the guy who's your adversary. I want you to realize the devil, as a roaring lion walk about, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. It's not your boss, it's not your husband or wife, it's not your neighbor, the devil wants to mess with you and get you angry and upset at each other and start hacking away and being mean to one another. Once we understand that it's a spiritual battle, we'll stop lashing out physically and becoming more ready to receive whatever the Lord wants to do. And the Lord will fight for you. The Lord is a warrior, he's mighty in battle. And the Lord can take care of you. Um, I think David sees this in a, a very strange little story in 2 Samuel chapter 16, if you recall, David, he, he has a, there's a military coup that is gonna take over Jerusalem and David's in real trouble. He's the king of Jerusalem, but it's his son who leads this coup against his own father. His name, Absalom, was the son of David. Absalom was this you know, handsome, muscular, long flowing hair, sitting at the gates of Jerusalem saying, my dad uh, doesn't have time for you, but I love you and I have time for you to be your king and ruler. So come talk to me. I can't believe it's not butter. Like this is the kind of guy uh, Absalom was, if you know the analogy there. And so David ends up leaving Jerusalem he puts sackcloth on his body and pours ashes on his head and he's barefoot and he goes, he grabs a few SEAL Team 6 members, uh, Abishai, some of these warrior guys just for a little bodyguard protection, a small little entourage, but they leave Jerusalem and along comes this little cranky, little creepy little dude named Shimei. And this little scrappy dude, Shimei, comes walking up to David and he picks up dirt clods and starts throwing them at David saying, you're a bloody man, David. And, and just starts yelling at him and throwing dirt clods. Is that something you do to a king? Especially when your SEAL Team 6 guys are around? What do you mean? Well, one of the toughest of David's mighty men, his name was Abishai. And if you read your Bible, Abishai knew how to kill you with his bare hands 21 different ways and not even break a sweat. That was Abishai. And, and David's you know, walking out depressed, barefoot, and, and this Shimei's throwing dirt clods. And, and Abishai says, David as he's drawing his sword. He says, David, I would like to remove his head. Please, can I, can I, please, can I? And David says, Abishai, put away your sword. Does that ring a bell? Um, you see, I think there's Old Testament pictures of New Testament truths, and this just might be one of them. What's going on? Abishai was ready to remove, this guy knew how to remove heads from off of people. You don't throw dirt clods at David. That's not a way to get ahead. So, sorry. <laughs> But Abishai was ready to kill him and David says, put away your sword. And then David says something strange. The Lord has put Shimei here for this very purpose today. Like David realized there was something else going on other than just dirt clods being thrown at him. There was a spiritual issue that was happening and David said, leave him alone. And so Shimei just walked along with him, throwing dirt clods at him all the way down the road. Now later on, Shimei gets what's coming to him. Just if you wanna read the rest of the story. But David understood there was a spiritual thing going, not a physical thing. Even though there were dirt clods hitting him in the head, he still knew that it was a spiritual issue. That's a good picture. And maybe it's good, maybe some of us, we need to recognize more of the spiritual battle and fight it as such. And what are our weapons? Well, that brings us to the next point. When you're fighting a spiritual battle, the weapons of our warfare, the Bible says, are not carnal or fleshly, but spiritual. One of the weapons we have is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the Bible says. We have the weapon of prayer. We even have the weapons of worship, but the single offensive weapon you've been given is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And, and this is where we see Peter's next mistake. P uh, mistake number four, uh, fighting 
with the wrong weapon. Peter should have been fighting with the spiritual sword, but he, was, he chose to pull a physical sword. Kind of interesting. Um, physical sword. It's funny uh, because I have people say, Brett, why do you talk about politics at church? And uh, my answer is this. I don't talk about politics, never. What I talk about is the Bible. And when the Bible talks about things, I'm gonna talk about them. Yeah, but they're political and you're a nonprofit association and you're not supposed to talk about it. Who cares? I'm gonna talk about whatever I want to as long as it's in the Bible because I'm a Bible teacher. So I'm gonna talk about things like abortion. I'm gonna talk about things like homosexuality. I'm gonna talk about things like Israel and the Palestinian-Arab-Israeli conflict. Those aren't political issues. Those are biblical issues. But I have noticed some people say, Brett, why don't you ever talk about the Second Amendment? And the answer, when the Bible's silent, I'm gonna be silent. Now, I'm just gonna say, I have strong opinions about the Second Amendment. And I have to resist the temptation to dive into it and talk about it. But I don't talk about it because I don't know that I can make a great case. Um, and, and don't give me scriptures, you know, and it's such as, you know, the disciples, Jesus said, carry a sword. There's a, there's a verse, that's where they all cling to that verse. Uh, you know, but you know what? I, I, Here's what I do know. I do know the Bible talks about our military and our police and how they're, they're ministers of God and they are ordained by God to carry the sword for the purpose of law and order. And that's something God is totally into. The Bible tells us that. Um, and so we know that part of it. But when it comes to your personal, like that's something that I would just say, pray about it yourself, seek the Lord, do what you feel like the Lord's leading you to do. Um, and the reason I bring that up today is because some of you might say, Brett, you know, it's fighting with the wrong weapon. Uh, I think you needed a 1911 instead of the Glock. It would have been more, you know, like some of you guys are thinking weapons, you know. Uh, it's like, this is great, uh, Bible stuff, you know. But, but when I say fighting with the wrong weapon, what I am saying is this. I am saying that one of the mistakes we make as Christians is sometimes we, we use the physical weapon, and maybe it's not a gun or a sword. Maybe it's your tongue. Your tongue is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison, the Bible says. Your tongue is a weapon. Maybe you're using the wrong weapon, lashing out at people and saying mean stuff. But whatever the weapon, Peter fights with the wrong weapon. Instead of using the physical sword, he should have been using the, the, the spiritual sword, the sword of the spirit. Because Jesus said, don't you understand, Peter? Put away your sword. I could have called down 12,000 or 12 legion of angels. Question, how many angels does it take to kill a huge army? Well, if you know your Old Testament, remember when Rabshakeh, the trash talker, surrounded uh, Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers from Assyria? And the Bible says one angel came and crushed them in one night, killed them all. That's a pretty honking angel. Um, did you know there's military angels? Michael, the archangel, is one of them. The Bible... I shouldn't get off on this tangent, but it's just intriguing. In the book of Revelation, there's, a, there's angels flying across the sky. It's not Chinese balloons. Um, but in the, tribulation, in the tribulation period, there's gonna be angels flying back and forth. But there's gonna be this one angel, the Bible talks about, where he's gonna put one foot in the ocean and one foot on a continent. Yo, ho, ho. Like, like I, I don't know what he's gonna say, but people are gonna go, wow, one angel. So, so the reason I, I, want, I want you to put perspective, Jesus is like, Peter, put away your little Swiss army knife. Um, because don't you understand, I could call 12 legions of angels to come to my rescue. And see, Peter is missing the whole point, thinking he needs to pull out the physical sword, but what he really should have been is knowing the spiritual sword of the spirit, the word of God. And, and he should have said like Jesus, it is written. You know, Jesus is gonna come and die on the cross for the sins of the world. And G the word defined what Jesus was doing. He should have, instead of using a physical sword, he should have been thinking about what the word of God actually had to say. Um, that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses three through five says, for though we walk in the flesh, this is what I was telling you about, Paul talking about our flesh, our sin nature, um, we do not war after the flesh. See, we walk in the flesh, real flesh and blood, but our warring is not after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, as Christians, you might say, it's not carnal or physical, but mighty through, the, through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations um, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought 
to the obedience of Christ. In the spiritual battle, there's spiritual strongholds and fortresses and bunkers. And, and the Lord says, our weapons tear down those strongholds and those fortresses and those bunkers um, when we use the word of God, our weapon of our warfare. So the one offensive weapon we get is the word of God. And by the way, you can misuse that weapon just like Peter's misusing a real sword. You can misuse the sword of the spirit. Be careful on that one too. Have you ever had somebody beat you over the head with the Bible? Uh, this, you know where the ugliest point of this is in marriage. The, the wife says, you're supposed to love me as Christ loved the church and gave himself for, and that means die. <laughs> and the husband says, yeah, well, you're supposed to submit to me, woman. The woman's supposed to submit to her husband, Ephesians chapter five. <laughs> Can I just tell you, if you're a husband and wife quoting scripture at each other, repent. That's a lose-lose. You're using the sword of the spirit wrongly. Uh, don't do that. That's a bad, don't be quoting scripture at each other. You can use the sword of the spirit to cut into your own flesh and say, where am I wrong? And what am I doing that's evil? What's my role? And, and you do battle against the evil one. You, you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, power, spiritual wickedness. The devil wants to get in you and mess you up. You can use the sword against the evil one, not against your wife or your husband. That's just one example, I could go others. But I love how Jesus models this, and then we'll move on to the next point. Um, when did Jesus use the sword of the Spirit? We'll use it all the time, but there's one great example. Matthew chapter four, remember when Jesus was led into the wilderness by the devil to be tempted? And every time the devil said, turn these stones into bread, and what did Jesus say? It is written. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get up on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off and he will give his angels charge over you. To, you know, to, and, and, and Jesus said, it is written. Every time the devil tempted him, Jesus said, it is written, and then used the sword of the spirit. Jesus modeled how that works perfectly, by the way. Poor Peter, he's overconfident in his flesh, personal weakness in his spirit, fighting the wrong battles, fighting with the wrong weapon, but number five, fighting for the wrong reason. Uh, I, I need to make this point fairly quick, but why did Peter pull out his sword and hack away at the assistant to the high priest? I don't know for sure, but can you and I agree that he did it for the wrong reasons? Because um, we know that he was wrong to do it to begin with. So whatever his reasoning, it was wrong. Can we agree on that? But I, I wonder if there's a lesson to be learned there because sometimes we feel right to hack away because we have a good point or a beef or we've built a case I should be defending. If I could guess, I'm just gonna guess uh, and I'll have to ask Peter when I get to heaven, but Peter, why did you pull the sword? Was it because you were trying to save face after in front of the disciples say, I will die with you, Jesus. Even if I die, I will not deny you. So this is Peter's chance. This is a short few hours later where now the opportunity has come for Peter to make good on his promise. I will never deny thee. And I wonder if his reasoning was to save face. Maybe it was pride. Well, I told Jesus I was gonna protect him and I know I'll probably die here because there's a whole Roman guard here and, I, and I, I've got this little Swiss army knife, but oh well, here it goes. Uh, like, like what was his reasoning? If it was that, it was just pride and it was wrong reason. You say, well, Brett, maybe he had good intentions. Maybe he really was trying to defend Jesus. But even as that comes out of your mouth, doesn't that sound a little weird, defending Jesus? I think sometimes we as Christians, we do that. We think we have to defend Jesus. Oh, can, can I ask some of you that are on social media typing away? It's really funny, especially on, on my goofy accounts and stuff. And uh, it's funny because I, I just, you know, announce prophecy updates and stuff that's happening. But, but every, you know, every now and then some, some internet troll will find a thread and jump in on mine and say, uh, I'm an atheist, God is dead, and you're all crazy Christians. King. That's what these trolls do. And they're looking for all these sweet Christian people who care about their pastor. They think, I'm going to f defend Pastor Brett and I'm going to defend the Bible and I'm gonna answer this troll. And that's exactly what they want you to do. Can I just tell you, I've never known anybody said, how were you saved? Oh, I was saved, I was trolling on the internet and, um, and all these church people piled on and told me Jesus was real and quoted scriptures. So I just repented and came to the Lord. I've never met that person. I think it's a big waste of time. 
You'll note, I don't spend a lot of time on that because if I answered everything on social media, I would be like my whole life. I'd forget being here on Sunday morning. I'd be there at my office typing answers and trying to defend. Jesus talked about, don't throw your pearls to the swine. There's a point where you're wasting time. And sometimes I think we as Christians fight and try to defend when really that's not really what the Lord would want us to do. Maybe it'd be to pray or be still. I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon. One of his quotes that I love is um, when Spurgeon was asked about this issue, he said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. It's like uh, defend a lion, just let it out of its cage. That's what we get to do with the Bible. The Bible defends itself. The Bible is the word of God, living and powerful, sharper than any judged sword. And sometimes I think we actually are for the wrong reasons trying to use the Bible to fight when the Lord says, this is not your fight. I think there's a time to fight and there's a time to be still. And I think a lot of times we aren't very sensitive to when the Lord wants us to step in and fight. So fighting for the wrong reason. Number six on our list, we're almost done. Then we see Peter making the mistake, the pitfall, the peril of keeping a distance now from the Lord. At one minute he's saying, I will never deny thee. And then the moment comes, I will not deny thee and I'm gonna defend thee. And now what happens? Well, do you think Peter felt ashamed about what happened? I mean, think about this. You, you bravely drew the little sword and you chopped off an ear and Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. And then he has to heal a guy that you just damaged. You chopped off his ear and, and then Jesus healed it. And then he was dragged off and you just stood there and did nothing. And now one of the great weapons of Satan, shame. I hope you understand that when you sin, one of the things Satan loves to do is condemn you. Oh, you promised. You told the Lord you were gonna do this or that. And you look at you, you failed. And then what do you do? Well, the, the, the knee-jerk response, if you're like me or a lot of us that have failed, you tend to kind of draw back and say, yeah, man, I'm such a failure. I'm sure the Lord's mad at me and I'm such a disappointment. And you start to withdraw from the Lord. I know people that don't go to church sometimes because like, well, I really messed up this week and boy, I, I just, I feel like a hypocrite. If I go to church this week because I, I you know, I, I did stuff and, and then I fit right in that category of what the world accuses us of being hypocrites, that's Satan and he wants to condemn you. But good news for the Christian there is therefore now no what? Condemnation. This is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation to who? To them which are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Well, Brett, my problem with that verse is I, 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 this last week I walked after the flesh. Oh, don't you understand the good news of the gospel? When you and I repent, and acknowledge our sin before the Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he remembers your sins no more. If Peter, right after this incident, could have just said, Lord, forgive me, I failed. And you were right. You were right, I did fail you. And I am one of the scattered sheep right now and, and I repent of that. I think Peter could have been in 100% good standing right at that second, but he did what we often do, starts dropping back and falling away. Where's that? Well, check out our text. It's right here in verse 57. It says in verse 57, and they, they had laid hold on Jesus and led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed afar off. This is the beginning of the end for Peter. He, he's, he's now trailing way in the back and he's, 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 he's no longer with Christ. Just like Jesus said. You guys are gonna be scandalized by what's gonna happen. You're gonna be you know, offended by me and you're gonna back off. And that's exactly what Peter starts doing. Keeping your distance from the Lord because of his shame and because of his condemnation. And I just mentioned the difference between condemnation versus conviction. Condemnation is from Satan. Conviction is from the Lord. Condemnation is bad. Conviction is good. Condemnation drives you away from the Lord Conviction draws you back to the Lord. But they're very closely related because they're both associated with feeling bad about yourself um, or being grieved of your own failures. Have you ever felt grieved in your heart because of your behavior? 
The question is, are you gonna be condemned about that grief or are you going to be convicted about that grief? What's the difference? Well, this is the condemnation verse I just showed you, Romans 8, 1. Let me show you a scripture about conviction. Um, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 and 10 says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, just grieved in general, but because you were grieved into repenting. The word repentance means to change your mind. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. When you're grieved about life, when you're grieved about your behavior, ask yourself, is this godly grief or worldly grief? Because worldly grief is condemnation and you feel condemned. You're like, oh man, I might as well hang it up. Might as well not hang out with the Lord anymore because I've blown it and I'm sure he's mad at me. Well, that's worldly grief and that produces death. But if you're like, man, I blew it again, but I'm gonna repent and Lord, would you forgive me for that sin and help me to start fresh and new? Well, that's godly grief that leads to conviction that leads to going back to the Lord. See, that's where it brings us to the final point and the fight, final pitfall of Peter and mistake that he makes. His, his separation from Jesus far off leads him to the next level, number seven, getting comfortable with the enemy. The rest of verse 58, Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and then went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now this is interesting because um, he, he doesn't just go in and sit with the servants of the high priest, but in Luke's gospel, it says, and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of Caiaphas's hall, they sat down together and Peter sat down, warming himself by the fire of the enemy. So, so in one minute, I will save you, Jesus. Then he makes a mistake and then he's following him far off. Now he kind of sneaks in and sits down. He's like, oh yeah, that guy, Jesus, he's warming himself by the fire with the enemies of Jesus. Is that a good place for a believer to be? See, some of you, when you were condemned of your sin, instead of going to church or going to your brothers and sisters for prayer and for encouragement and help, you went back to the old bar you used to hang out with because you felt so bad about your Christian faith and your failure, you thought, well, I might as well fail some more. Or you went back to those old friends that give you bad counsel, not biblical counsel. Or you go back to those addictions or behaviors that you once clinged to when you were failing. And that's what happens when you're condemned, man. It leads to death and bummers and more trouble. And Peter finds himself, after following afar off, now he's warming himself by the fire of the enemy. And what happens to Peter? Did anybody remember? What happens to Peter while he's sitting by the fire? Anybody? That's where he starts denying Jesus over and over and over again. Even when a little girl comes up, hey, this guy was one of Jesus' disciples. No, I wasn't, blankety blank. Like Peter now is full blown, uh, just messing up altogether, denying Jesus. And after the third time, cock a doodle doo, just like Jesus said. Now you say, Brad, okay, he was warming himself at the fire of the enemy. Um, I see that problem. Um, but you know what I love? And I wanna end with this notion. I love that God still loves Peter and Jesus particularly shows love to Peter after he raises up from the grave. You know, if I were Jesus, which you should be glad I'm not, but if I came back, I'd say, oh yeah, Peter, I forgive you. But once in a while when Peter said something stupid, I'd just go, cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just a little reminder of what a fool he really is, how stupid he was. But I love that Jesus, when he sees Peter, he, he gives Peter three times to affirm his love for Jesus, even as he three times denied Jesus. And, and Peter then follows Jesus. And in the new, after the resurrection of Jesus, when the church starts, Peter becomes one of the most faithful, solid brothers in all the Bible. And it's because of the love of Christ that changed him. That's why the Bible tells us in Isaiah 52, 14, that you know, Jesus would be wounded beyond description. Even his appearance would be so marred beyond human semblance. That prophetically was talking about Jesus going to the cross. And why did he do such a thing? Well, Isaiah 53, the next chapter says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we seemed to not. Surely hath borne our griefs carried our sorrows, 
We just did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, the whipping on his back, we are healed. All we like sheep, or Peter, have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Prophetically, this is such a powerful verse, but Peter could apply this. This is why Peter was able to show his face to Jesus and not be totally ashamed, because Jesus went to the cross, smitten and afflicted for Peter, wounded for Peter's transgressions, bruised for Peter's iniquities. Good news though, not just Peter, but you. When you fail and sin and make mistakes as a Christian, one of the things you can remember is that's why Jesus went to the cross. And his cross is powerful to save. Uh, I like putting my name in here. Maybe you should do that. Wherever the word our is in this verse, I like to put my name in. He hath borne Brett's griefs, carried Brett's sorrows, he was wounded for Brett's transgression. He was bruised for Brett's iniquities. And the chastisement of Brett's peace was upon him. And by his stripes, Brett was healed. All we like Brett have gone astray. But we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on Jesus the iniquity of Brett. And you can put your name in there too. Because that's why he died. No matter how bad you've been, no matter mistakes you've made, Christ can love you that much. That's what he did on the cross, dying on the cross for your sins. I'm so thankful. When I study Peter's mistakes and pitfalls, I'm just, I recognize myself in them, but I'm also thankful, like Peter, that Jesus takes my sins and forgives. All I need to do is confess, repent, have grief to repentance, and then confess. The Lord says, I can forgive that. Good news for the believer. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you uh, for so great a message of your love for failed people like us, mistaken people like Peter, Lord, we, we acknowledge that and we really um, can represent all kinds of failure in this room, people that have made mistakes, but we're thankful that you're the God of the second chance and the 10th chance and the 100th chance, that your mercy endures forever. We thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to learn from the mistakes of Peter and not do the same things. Help us to grow and be filled with the Spirit like Peter and become more effective in serving you. If you would, keep your heads bowed and the hour is getting late. So I do wanna say this though, if you're not a Christian and you're still in your sin and maybe you have that condemnation where you feel like you've blown it, you know you've sinned and you're like, why, why should I even think about being a Christian? I've made so many mistakes. Listen, the Lord wants to save you and forgive you and I don't care how bad you've been. The Bible says he saves even to the uttermost, meaning the furthest out. You could be the furthest person out in the world in the area of sin and, and the, the love of Christ is good enough, powerful enough to forgive even your sins. And if you've never done that, you're missing out on the forgiveness. Being a Christian is not a person who signs up for a church membership or does a certain act or deed or pays money or becomes part of a club or carries a huge Bible or any of that. A Christian is someone who says, I'm a sinner and I repent. Repentance of sin, where you say, I acknowledge that I've blown it and I've sinned and then accepting the gift of God, which is salvation through Jesus, who died on the cross, rose from the grave. And it says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, it says, you will be saved. And I just can't leave without asking, is there anyone who'd wanna do that? I won't embarrass you. I won't make you get in front of anybody, but with everybody else's heads bowed right now, um, if you're saying, Brett, that's me, I wanna accept Christ and be forgiven and be a Christian, knowing that that means I'm repenting of my sin and accepting the work of the cross. If you want that, I'd like to pray that prayer of confession with you. But would you just acknowledge that just between you, me, and the Lord right now and lift up your hand so I can see it, the Lord can see it. Just make that bold step and say, that's me. I wanna accept Christ today. I'm gonna look around and uh, see if that's you. Anybody at all, let me look around. Don't wanna miss you. Cool, good, I see you up here. You over there, good. Way in the back, I see you over here too. Good. Anybody else? I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession. I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray this out loud as we back these five or six people and, um, and let's pray out loud and, and, then, and really support. And then if this is you lifting your hand, the Lord will hear this prayer. He'll honor it. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. 
I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. That he rose up from the grave and that all my sins are forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So Lord, as we have said this prayer, how thankful we are that confession is made to salvation, it says there in Romans. I pray you would wrap your loving arms around these people who've just confessed this. And, and Lord, that they would know that their sins are forgiven. And help us all to walk with you, Lord. I pray that we'd love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, serve you, and walk with you. Lord, that's where we wanna be. That's where we need to be. So bless as we go our way now in Jesus' name, amen.